Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about a farewell address from the Mexican mountains. No, I'm not going anywhere. And I suppose, depending on how I title this episode, it may sound like I am. But no, I want to refer back to a farewell address to a senior class from a graduating senior and talk from that perspective. In other words, I want to look something like 30 or more years into the past and talk about high school just a little bit. There's a couple of things I'm going to get from that. First, it gives me a chance to do something I haven't really done as directly as I'm going to this week and maybe next week too. And that's share a bit of my own faith journey. But it also gives me a chance to talk about bullying. So I want to kind of do both of these things. Let me start off with a bit of a teaser, though. I bet in your high school that at what we would call class day assembly or senior day assembly, where the last uh, gathering together of graduating seniors happens, on school grounds during school time at at an event where speeches are given and awards are given and there's a lot of applause and it's the last thing at least in my school it was the last thing before graduation we had an action-packed weekend if i'm remembering the details correctly that saturday night was prom sunday afternoon was a voluntary optional vespers service monday morning was this class day assembly uh, and then Monday night was the actual graduating assembly with cap and gown and diplomas handed out and hands shaking the whole nine yards, right? All those things line up back to back to back. I'm going to bet, though, that most high schools who follow this ritual have a most likely to succeed, you know, a most likely to get married, a most likely to whatever, right? I bet few of them have an award for most likely to be found on a mountaintop in Guadalajara writing the words most profound three-word sentence. My school had, at least for that one year, that particular award. And I know because I won it. Before I go there, though, just to sort of set the scene, and it's a scene that is probably easy to set because anyone who's um, my age or anywhere in the ballpark of my age probably can make a quick comparison to your own school experience. I'm not talking about my, high, my public school in the American Midwest as being special in any way. In fact, the argument I'm going to make is that my school situation was pretty ordinary, pretty normal. And one of the things that was there that we don't really talk about much, I'm sure it isn't a topic that's addressed in reunions or anything like that, is bullying. Bullying was, from maybe the 6th, 7th grade on, a daily fact of life. I was aware and taking into account some aspect of what we would call bullying today. Maybe not every day, but enough days that it was it was a normal thing, that the walk to school included some people you wanted to avoid, some topics you wanted to avoid, some problems you needed to deal with or to avoid dealing with, and it was all trying to, to walk the line. Now, who was I in high school? Well, I've already shared early on in inappropriate conversations that I was somebody who, who tried to write quite a bit. And I was on the school newspaper. I tended to have bylines. 
I spent some time on the editorial page, uh, so I got to speak opinions as well. But I also had an underground writing with a pseudonym, and that writing tended to be a little bit more vulgar. Attempts at humor, both successful and often as not unsuccessful. And so I was the I was the smart-ass kid. So I was welcomed enough in most groups because I wasn't a member of very many. Uh, being a member of one particular clique or another was a pretty good way of, of – being blocked out of others, you know. So if you're if you're part of this group, you're not going to be welcome in that one, for example. But short of being part of the band, part of the marching band, as a drummer, and part of the journalism, you know, process, school newspaper, all that, you really couldn't point a finger at me and say what groups I was in. I was perhaps most notable for what I wasn't. I wasn't part of the pep club or cheerleading. I wasn't part of student government. I wasn't part of uh, any athletic program. You know, I wasn't part of a sports team. Wasn't part of, uh, you know, too much in terms of honors programs. Honors English, yes. I think the chemistry class I had was a hybrid of, of honors and, and regular students. But, you know, for the most part, you know, academically, pretty strong. School spirit, yes. Attended most, you know, major sporting events for my high school. Cheered for my high school. But, you know, not somebody who was, you know, you're not, you're not going to find me at the party on Friday and Saturday night. Very often, I preferred small groups and small gatherings. And the biggest group gatherings I ever participated with were probably something to do with the marching band. Or, you know, uh, I also you know, would play for the orchestra because that was a good gig. Your uh, male to female ratio is pretty nice as far as it goes. And as a percussionist for the orchestra, depending upon the band leader, there were some days when you had nothing to do. I literally, it was like an extra study hall because if we were doing something truly soft and non-percussive, my job was to not make any noise, <laughs> especially if it was a particularly challenging work where the, the orchestra director had to spend a lot of time working with the violins and the violas on their part. Sometimes I would be sitting in a class for the entire time where you know one particular group of violin players were covering the same particular um, bars of music over and over and over again. So I wasn't, wasn't really part of any group. But if you're a public enough person that you're in the newspaper, you're not going to be invisible. I've said before that if I were a superhero, the superpower that I would want, maybe not so much now, but definitely when I was in high school, the superpower I would want was invisibility. The tremendous power of not being seen and therefore not being a target and therefore being able to get any information you want because you could move not just in and out of clicks, which I tried to do, but also to move from place to place unnoticed. Uh, there'd be power there because when you've got an association with the concert chorus, not so much as a performer, but as sort of a student assistant and an association with the orchestra as a, as a performer, when you're in the band, when you're not part of, a, of an athletic team, when the woman you're dating in your senior year goes to another school or when the girls that you're dating the year before that were typically in a younger class than yourself. I dated when I was a junior, I dated sophomores and even some freshmen. You're a target for the kind of bullying that raises questions about sexual orientation. In retrospect, it sounds ridiculous and it might be easy to hit this part of middle age that I'm in and forget that fact. But the truth is that the number one way that you know boys would attack other boys, that questions would be raised about reputations, the easiest way to sully someone's reputation 
at that part of the 1980s was to raise questions about their heterosexuality. So there was a lot of bullying, uh, a lot of people jockeying for position, uh, a lot of threats of physical violence. I, I didn't have a fight after junior high school, but in high school, it wasn't like even as a sophomore or even first part of my junior year that there weren't occasions where people were letting me know that um, I better watch my back, that by answering insult for insult, somebody who was taking a pot shot at me was simply raising the stakes and elevating the uh, elevating the level of violence. So you're in that sort of atmosphere. And it's in this context, which I've said all along, that I prayed almost every day in school. I can't think that it's true that that's obvious to my classmates, that anybody who went to school with me, I mean, I didn't make a show of it. I wasn't dropping a mat on the floor, orienting myself to the east and praying to Mecca or anything like that. But if you believe that prayer is truly conversation with God, uh, that can happen anywhere. That can happen walking down the hall. It doesn't have to be out loud, for, for want of a better word. And so I think there was a lot of times where I was sort of you know praying for guidance. And even back as far as my first part of my senior year in high school, I really had a strong sense that if I was praying well, and if I was listening right, because praying is a two-way street of communication, that God could help me if I, if I paid attention, that the Holy Spirit could guide me on not turning down the wrong hallway, not choosing to use the wrong restroom, um, not going to the restroom sooner than I really needed to, or holding on a little longer to avoid being in a situation where somebody would, you know, take a pot shot at you verbally or otherwise, because bullying is real. Now, we all know that the high school environment probably hasn't gotten any better. You cannot have so many instances of teen suicide and instances of violence like Columbine High School for the obvious example and say that we live in a place where we're above and beyond that sort of bullying. As a matter of fact, with the efforts of you know, many states to step up and get us closer to a zero-tolerance policy toward this kind of hatred, you're seeing examples in states like Michigan and Tennessee where the legislatures are actually putting in, or trying, and generally failing, to put in provisions that make an exception, that it's okay for Christians to bully. Now, that's an easy way to word it. It's not exactly that way. To be fair to you know the state of Tennessee and the provisions that they're debating about what to put into law, they simply want to to make sure that if if a Christian kid calls another kid a an abomination and says he's going to burn in hell, that he won't be misconceived as a bully. What exactly does it mean to misconceive those words as bullying? There's a website. Uh, that I've encountered recently called Tea Party Jesus. I believe it's just teapartyjesus.com, where the uh, the artists here have rendered pictures of you know, traditional sort of pictures of Jesus um, in scenes that you might recognize, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane or Jesus telling, let the little children come to me. But instead of using a scriptural speech bubble, they've replaced the words with things that have been said you know, recently by our Republican presidential candidates and other pundits and calling out that it's very hard to imagine the words that so-called Christian activists are saying in Christ's name coming out of the mouth of the biblical Jesus. 
And this would be another one of those examples where the kind of speech that would get you in trouble in a hard anti-bullying law is not speech that needs to have a Christian exception to it because, you know, referring angrily and and, in a mean-spirited tone of voice about someone else's sin or calling somebody a liar or calling them, you know, an abomination. These are not the kind of words that Jesus directed toward anybody who we might refer to as an everyday person. Jesus used those kinds of angry words from time to time, but he always directed them toward the religious and political leaders of the society that he was in. In other words, I think Jesus would have some really harsh words that are difficult to hear for the religious right in America today. He might have some things to share with the Pope that the Pope might not want to hear, and Jesus might say it in a tone of voice that might not go down so well. But he never would be speaking those words to a 17-year-old kid feeling completely alone in the school that he's going to because he knows that he doesn't fit in and that he has a secret which, if told, would ruin his entire social standing. Now, it's one question to say, well, why should something like that ruin a kid's social standing? But we've got to remember that, for at least from my personal experience, it didn't matter whether a rumor like that was true or not. A rumor like that could be obviously and patently false. The entire school could stipulate that they know that it's just a load of crap. But if it gets a rise out of you, then you're fair game. I don't for the life of me understand why any true Christian, and I realize I'm stepping on some dangerous ground here by using that adjective, would not stand up against bullying. Why any Christian would want to have an exception that leaves the evangelical students in the school uh, free to say as harmful and as hateful things as they want to. The truth is, the law in Michigan went down because a lot of those same Christians realized that that law could be used against them as well, that they might become the target of bullying at the hands of, I don't know, a, a, a very large Muslim enclave in certain parts of you know suburban Michigan, suburban Detroit. And they would then have no recourse because it's unconstitutional to pass a law that specifies that one religion has special rights over all the other religions. But if you exempt religious hate speech, then you leave yourself as a Christian vulnerable to the target of the religious hate speech of people who aren't Christians. Tennessee, in my understanding, has not resolved their issue yet. But that's not the only high school story that I wanted to tell. I wanted to instead shift the attention over toward Rhode Island and talk about something that has happened just in January of this year, where a student who identifies herself as an atheist wanted a banner removed from her high school because of the religious language used in the banner. And this prayer banner, quite literally called a, uh, a school prayer, was removed by the court system or ordered to be removed by the court system. And I wanted to share with you, uh, I'll share the actual words of the prayer in a moment because I think they're ironic, but I wanted to share with you first some of the response that the student got on things like Facebook and Twitter and email. Um, this was the Christian response. This is the kind of response that Christians in Tennessee and Michigan wanted to protect, that Christian students making a religious response to you know, another student should not be the victim of some sort of bullying law, that the bullying law shouldn't apply to them. I'm not on Twitter, so I'm just going to quote some of the examples that have been posted to a blog 
So I'm not getting any Christian response to these Christians. I'm not hearing them rebuked by other believers. Maybe that's happening and it's not included in this website. But does that really matter? The fact of the matter is these words are coming out of Christians' mouths right now in the month of January 2012. May that little evil atheist teenage girl and that judge burn in hell. If the banner comes down, hell, I hope the school burns down with it. You little brainless idiot. Hope you will be punished. One of the quotes, and I'm not seeing it right now, it was one of the tweets that says, I hope Satan rapes you in hell. These are the words coming from Christians in response to a non-Christian student. Things like, well, but for real, somebody should jump this girl. Let's uh, beat her up after class. All of this kind of talk. And literally, I'm not picking and choosing. I'm just going down the list. There are dozens. There might be hundreds of these posts. Now, the response I always give, in the interest of full disclosure and complete confession, is we almost have to draw a line between, you know, who's a Christian and who's not. And the argument, well, that's not a true Christian, was addressed by the blogger, one of the bloggers, who wrote about this, uh, Nina, says, what do these people mean? These folks aren't true Christians. A true Christian is a person who's accepted Jesus Christ as his or her personal Lord and Savior. A person is not a true Christian on the basis of her or his behavior or actions, but on the basis of what is in her or his heart, correct? That is what every single evangelical, proselytizing, crusading Christian has ever told me. So on what basis do people decide whether others are true Christians? That's the trick here, right? I think I'm beyond the point of saying, well, let's decide who's a true Christian and who's just calling themselves Christians, because I would have a heck of a hard time finding somebody in the religious right today who would meet my personal litmus test for true Christians. You know, do you have a love your neighbor attitude toward gays and lesbians? If you don't, if you can't demonstrate that in a really affirmative way, then you're not a true Christian, right? You know, I'm better off saying that maybe we should just divide into two religious frames of thought, uh, divide Christianity into the two parts, the one that's committed to the ministry of Jesus Christ as truly Christian ministry, and the part that is sold on this sort of political gamesmanship, that's worried about whether a banner is hanging in a high school or not. Ministry, M-E-N-A-C, ministry in that sense. Because this, you know, never say die, winner take all, scorched earth political approach seems profoundly unchristian to me. But at what point do I get to say who's really a believer or not? That's the challenge. So what was so offensive about this banner? Well, here are the words. I'm going to leave out the school prayer headline on top of the banner. I'm going to leave out the Our Heavenly Father and the Amen and just read the rest of it to you. Grant us each day the desire to do our best, to grow mentally and morally as well as physically, to be kind and helpful to our classmates and teachers, to be honest with ourselves as well as with others. Help us to be good sports and smile when we lose as well as when we win. Teach us the value of true friendship. Help us to always conduct ourselves as to bring credit to the high school. Those words, in and of themselves, could be read by the principal at the beginning of every school year. They could be read by the secretary over the PA system at the beginning of every school day. 
and they would be perfectly acceptable as the guiding words of wisdom from the adult leaders of the school to the students and teachers who are working and attending there. The prayer piece of it almost seems like window dressing. The Our Heavenly Father at the beginning and the Amen and the end don't seem to be integrally a part of the entire rest of the banner. So I don't really understand why the Christians in Rhode Island and elsewhere who've tweeted unbelievable amount of hate speech toward this, this teenage girl, I don't understand what they're so upset about. It's almost a humanist creed, right? The irony is, of course, lines like help us to be good sports and smile when we lose. That doesn't just apply to the athletic events and the extracurricular activities run through this school. It also, in my opinion, in this case, applies to the results of the court hearing, where the so-called Christians lost that fight. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. So I think as I'm going to describe it, my description of Christian is going to be a little bit different from anything that I've just described in Rhode Island or elsewhere in the country, because as a Christian, I was opposed to bullying. And as a Christian, I was willing to use the power of prayer to help me avoid as much of that as humanly possible. Now, I'm no angel. I've spoken in the past about mistakes that I've made in interpersonal relationships during high school. And here in the area of bullying, I don't have a clean record. Somebody could certainly find words that I've spoken or perhaps even written in junior high school and high school that would have been intended to big myself up at the expense of other students. I remember one instance in particular where um, a female classmate corrected me, literally rebuked me very directly using the power that she had in our relationship together. I mean, it wasn't that we were uh, strangers, so she didn't have that power of anonymity. Um, she still had to deal with me. We were classmates in a couple of classes that year. But because of the fact that I you know, really wanted to remain in good standing with her, I stopped and listened. And it was, once again, questions of sexual orientation. My beef was I didn't understand why I was taking flack or why other students were taking flack over things like, well, you're in the orchestra, you must be gay, when students in the high school who actually were gay didn't catch the same amount of slack. That was very wrong. So I'm no angel here. The best thing I can say is that I listened when people said, you're making a mistake, you're doing the wrong thing. We're talking about kids in high school. So you're not going to hit the right mark all the time. But more often than not, my, my goal was to avoid any situations where I was going to be asked to speak my mind on an issue that would have been you know, tantamount to bullying or would have inspired bullying in any way. And frankly, as an adult, I support a lot of the legislation that's out there to say, you know, there are certain things we're not going to be able to do. We cannot pass a law or wave any sort of magic wand that's going to make kids nice to each other. But there is a line. And I really struggle that if words can be spoken that would lead a student to commit suicide, we adults had better do better 
than saying there's nothing we can do about that. There's something we can do about it, and we ought to do it. So if it weren't for just the general sort of nonsense over, you know, you bumped into me or I didn't like what you wrote in the paper or I think you're a jerk or what have you, without that level of sort of confrontation, which is normal for any sort of large group of people, especially at that age. So it's a normal high school thing, I imagine. What else made me different? Well, a couple things. Again, I was kind of a smart aleck. And I used a phrase often to turn humor into situations that otherwise might not have it. I was probably as well known as uh, for anything else as being the guy who said the phrase, so to speak, a lot. There were very few instances where a pun could be made that I didn't try to make it. And in some respects, I'm not that different now than I've ever been. But the, uh, the standard method that I would use would, do, would be to drop the phrase, so to speak, into conversation. If I ever heard somebody who was heading toward a speech class mention that they were getting ready for their oral exams, I would certainly say so to speak after that sentence. If a female friend of mine on the second floor was ready to head down toward the cafeteria and use the expression, I'm ready to go down if you are, I'm, I'm pretty sure I never resisted the opportunity to say so to speak at the end of that as well. I wonder if the modern standards of sexual harassment rules would have had me in hot water just because of using that simple three-word phrase in particularly mischievous ways. But I don't think those are the three words that were mentioned when on the last, the last class I had, the last moment I had with my fellow seniors in high school, I was given the special one-time honor of being most likely to be found on a mountaintop in Guadalajara writing the world's most profound three-word sentence. It's possible that some people were making ironic reference to the lack of profundity in the use of the term, so to speak, but I don't think so. I think it was something along the lines of the last couple, three months, maybe the last five months of high school, this particular guy getting very serious and very serious about the meaning of the phrase, I love you. I am perhaps, you know, a bit of an anomaly in the sense that most of the time the farewell addresses in that final class day assembly were limited to people who were part of elected office. If you were the senior class president, if you were the student body president, if you were the valedictorian, although usually the valedictorian speech would be later that night at the actual graduation ceremony. But you had to have been somebody who was essentially in one level or another popularly elected or had a title formally conferred upon you to be called upon to give a speech to the senior class, a farewell address. I was an exception. The senior class president had, you know, through conversations with me, essentially given me his spot. I don't know if he gave me his entire time for that speech or whether he gave me a piece of it, but I was on the stage that day because I had written something, Mark had read it, and Mark said, I can't use these words, but these words need to be spoken. I want them to be spoken by you. And before we get to the end today, I'll share that farewell address to my senior class. But before I go there, I think a little explanation is necessary about why I became so engaged. What changed in me from the smart-ass you know, writer and ghostwriter who um, was looking more to make a mischievous pun or a mischievous prank than to say anything serious? And I think the main thing was that I began to be... Um, aware of the needs of people that I didn't really know otherwise. 
you know, you go to if you go to all of junior high school and senior high school in America at the time and you're in the same graduating class the whole time, you're going to be hanging out with a similar set of students for six consecutive years. Um, you're going to spend, you know, all of seventh, eighth and ninth grade in one school and then in another school spend 10th, 11th and 12th grade. And the way my school district worked, or at least the way the school I went to worked, we had a lot of overlap between ninth and 10th grade. Uh, you could be part of senior high elective activities like marching band and still be in the ninth grade. You might be able to be an extra in the senior high school plays or productions while still in the junior high school. So, you know, you're going to, you're going to have a lot of interaction with a lot of people across six grades. And the main thing is if you're going to spend you know time in the same school, you're going to be year over year progressing both academically and socially with a common set of students. Now, when we hit the 10th grade, the uh, class size expanded dramatically because a couple of other junior high schools would fold into ours. So it wasn't that it was all the same students all the way. And some of my closest friends came from other places, either other high schools that had closed and had parts of their school district merged with ours or simply from other junior high schools. But the reason that I bring that up is that it's also possible to, quote unquote, know somebody, to be aware of somebody and either not have a class with that person the whole time or if you've only had maybe one class with that person, not have any connection, not have a relationship any more than saying, well, that's somebody I had in geometry class when I was in ninth grade, and that's how I know him, or that's how I know her. So what happened to me in the senior year of high school was, well, for starters, in a story I've kind of told in a, in a little bit of a different way in a previous different drummer segment, I talked a little bit about that high school experience, not unlike the high school experience shown on TV in Joan of Arcadia, where you suddenly become aware of things that you weren't aware of before. And as a senior, I you know, was given rumor. It was either a problem because it was a rumor that wasn't true or it was a problem because it was a rumor that was true. But it was a, a drug use. It was a reckless behavior. It was a reckless social behavior on the part of somebody that I had a class with for the first time in years had a class with and didn't know from Adam. And everyone seemed convinced that something needed to be done, but the somebody wasn't them. And I, you know, of course, initially thought, well, you know, obviously the somebody's not me either. A, I don't have any reason to care. You know, I'm an, I'm an acquaintance at best. And B, um, this person does have good friends. This is a popular person. This is somebody whose who's, uh, social standing in all the various cliques in the school was certainly better than mine. So there had to be somebody in one of those other organizations that, you know, if only the National Honor Society, somebody else in the National Honor Society was closer or from the same gender. You know, somebody who wouldn't be crossing some sort of a line there. Because at this point in time, I'm dating the woman who's now my wife. And the problem that I had was, is that this sense of uh, involvement didn't go away. It got stronger and stronger and stronger. And I was left with this overwhelming notion that I needed to say something. I needed to get in the way. Now, I don't know that this rumor of drug problem was even true. Um, I don't. And if it was true, I certainly don't know whether it was and I didn't have anything to do with it or anything to positively or negatively I had no role to play. Right. But at the same time, even without regard for that reason, I was struck with what I can only call a strong spiritual sense that I had to get involved. So I can remember 
going to church one one night, maybe a Wednesday night when other activities were going on, but I wasn't involved in those other activities. I wasn't part of the continuing education program. I wasn't part of any Wednesday night children's program. I was just there for some reason as a youth, as a member of a church, as a youth. And of course, still today, I've always felt really entitled that the building was mine to roam in, that I was a part of it. And that if at any time I wanted to go to the church and just sit in the sanctuary in the, in the silence, or even in the dark, that was perfectly acceptable. I felt that way at every church I've been a member of. And that feeling has a lot to do with my willingness to become a member of a church. I've had a conversation with the people in my church, the church I'm going to now, that I'm the slowest person ever to switch churches. I may not be that slow to walk away from a church if that church begins failing to be a genuine, you know, follower of Christ. If the church that I'm going to starts supporting bullying and and engaging in in anti in anti homosexual, you know, activities or it begins to do things that raise questions about whether they know who our neighbor is and even what the meaning of the word sin is, I could be out the door in a second, right? But I might not go out one door and into another door very quickly. I spend a lot of time getting comfortable with any church before I ever decide to call myself a member of that church. And when I was growing up, I spent time with two main churches that I was a member of, uh, or at least a member via my family. And the second of those churches I felt less comfortable with than the first, but I was nevertheless there because that was the church I went to as a senior in high school. And I had this problem as a senior in high school that I didn't know what to do, but I could no longer ignore the sense that I needed to do something. So I went to the chapel, the smaller part of the sanctuary, a separate room, a little room, still with an altar, still with a Bible, still with a cross, still with little pews, but very much, you know, the chapel. And it's there that I did some of the most intense praying that I'd ever done at that point in my life. And the gist of the prayer was, what am I supposed to do? I mean, if I say anything to this girl, it could create trouble with the girl I'm dating. It could create trouble in my social circle. It could create trouble in her social circle, which inevitably is going to create just more trouble in my social circle. I had no problem coming up with the negatives, and I couldn't think of anything that was a positive enough for getting involved to make it worth that socially ostracizing gamble. So I prayed about it. I didn't get a good answer. I didn't get a clear answer. At no point did I, you know, there's no burning bush in front of me or anything like that, um, you know, no you know, scroll appearing out of nowhere, unfolding before my, before my eyes in an unbelievable hallucination with his exact and specific instructions. So I decided, being unsatisfied with that answer, despite the fact that I'd seen evidence, I'd heard the rumors, I'd denied the rumors, I'd questioned the rumors, there'd been evidence to support the rumors, I decided the drug wasn't dangerous, only to be told by my family members and by church and the youth group just randomly, not me asking, just this particular drug popping up in conversation. Um, but I said, no, I'm not going to do anything about it. Now, you would think that as a, as a Christian who is denying your call, who is failing to do what you believe the Holy Spirit is prodding you to do, that that would lead to a real shutting off, an exclusion, that you'd be out. And to a certain degree, I felt that way. I won't deny that to a certain degree, I had this feeling that um, that my prayer life had suffered greatly, and that it no longer felt like conversation with God. It felt more like 
me just talking to myself. And that that difference is genuinely real. I realize that it's probably a popular notion among non-believers to say that, that those two things are identical to each other. No, it felt very different. But that wasn't the only problem I had. I then began having what I can only describe in new agey sort of terms, things like premonition, things like seeing the future, things like, you know, things that seem to break down the barrier of time and location. And it happened a couple of times and you just say, well, that's kind of funny. That's a bit of a coincidence. If it happens enough, you can start leveraging it as sort of a party joke that you know something. No one thinks you could know it. It's a bit like a magic trick. Again, always looking for a laugh. There was a way to leverage some of this for a laugh. But it happened enough and frequently enough surrounding essentially this situation with me and this classmate that at certain points it became a little bit hard to deal with. Driving down the road and simply knowing for no other reason that if I turn down this street – that's where her house is. I hadn't looked up her address. I don't even think I had a good copy of a school directory at that point in time. But I pulled down the street, sort of calling the bluff, hoping the rationalist side of my mind could shut this crap down, right? Only to drive down that street about a half a mile or so and pass by a house that appeared to have the car she drove in it. Or to be in situations where uh, one day I distinctly remember I was, I was shaving and um, instead of using the electric razor, I was using the old-fashioned, you know, the, the twin blade back then would have been cutting-edge technology and warm water and a washcloth and all that. For me, the, um, the bathroom in our, uh, the upstairs part of our house, close to my bedroom, didn't have a window in it. And my, my bedroom had a window in it, but my window was out in the backyard looking, you know, at, at nothing. My sister's bedroom was across the hall from the bathroom and it had a window and that window faced right out across the street from the school. Literally, if you looked out her window, you were looking at the drive that, that you would use if you drove to school, the, the main road into the parking lot of the school with the only thing separating my house from the school parking lot was a residential street, just a little two lane street. So I'm shaving and I get this again, I would have bet cash on it in retrospect, this feeling that her car is about to drive by. Like, well, that's ridiculous. There is no reason why she'd be getting to school 45, 50 minutes early. And there was, you know, it wasn't like there was a lot of cars in the parking lot. It's not like a lot of students got to school that early unless they were part of the marching band and it was marching band season, which at this point it wasn't, or part of the school play and they were practicing before and not after school, although usually those kind of practices happen after. But she wasn't part of the school play. She's part of the chorus. But to my knowledge, there hadn't been anything going on there, and I probably would have known. I was you know, the teacher's assistant for that particular uh, senior-level concert chorus. And so between the first inkling that if you look out the window, you're going to see your car drive by, and when I actually sort of, again, called the bluff and looked, I want to say a minute, two minutes, three minutes went by because I'm arguing with myself. I'm saying there's no way that makes any sense. I'm not going to stop shaving and throw off my morning routine over some sort of speculative new agey dare, right? That's ridiculous. But then the thought persisted and I, I fought it a little longer. I said, you know, just use, the, use your logic and reason. You know, this is the kind of person who, like me, would prefer to show up to class one minute late than 10 minutes early. There's no reason to show up early. That's not going to happen. And then when I finally said, okay, look, I'm going to set down the razor. 
I'm going to walk across the hall. I'm going to look out the window. If I see your car, I'll start taking seriously this idea that I need to, to rethink my approach and maybe do something about this. But if I don't, that just that should settle it, right? I walked into my sister's bedroom, looked out the window, and at that very moment, her car pulls down the street, pulls into the drive. That stopped me in my tracks. And it threw me enough off that some of the people who knew me reasonably well noticed the difference and began asking what was going on for the first time after literally days or weeks of this going on. But even then, a lot didn't. A lot of my closest friends paid no mind to it whatsoever. Uh, There was a few less so-to-speaks coming out of my mouth. But they probably didn't have a sense that I was having a metaphysical crisis. But it didn't stop there. That was the first one, though, the car, that I thought to myself, okay, let's say at some point I've got an eidetic memory and I don't really know I've got an eidetic memory. I don't think I do. But maybe I do and I don't know it. And subconsciously, I've chanced across this address before and somehow my brain could tap into it. And now that I've been driving a little while, now that I'm 17 years old, I, I, know, the, I know the landscape, I know the map better. And it's just the first time I put it all together. Maybe that explains that one. How do you explain the car? Could I really have been like, you know, our first dog when we got married had an unbelievable hearing distinction. And that somehow her ability to hear my car, my distinct car outweighed almost all the other quirks about her dog ears that she wouldn't react when just any car would pull down the cul-de-sac and pull into the driveway, but she'd react to mine. Now we lived at that time in a cul-de-sac where the opening to the street was not visible from our house. So this wasn't a, a visible thing. It was a, a hearing thing with this dog. But my wife would tell me the dog would always freak out at least 30 seconds before I would get home because she could hear the car and somehow was able to distinguish my car from all the other cars because the dog was happy to see me, right? Well, I don't feel like I've got that skill. I don't think I'm that guy who two minutes before somebody pulls into my street, I'm hearing their car at the stoplight half a mile away, picking it up and registering it as theirs and feeling so confident about it that my mind is ready to gamble with me over the fact that that's really her. I think the worst one for me, or at least the best example of this, I was heading out of the journalism classroom with a female friend of mine who understood kind of what I was dealing with. And I, I think didn't believe any of it for a second. I think that she felt like, well, like me, if these drug rumors were true, this girl has a problem. If these drug rumors are false, guess what? She still has a problem. Um, she's dealing with the female version of rumor and innuendo being used as a form of bullying. She has a problem, right? And I think my friend had the same attitude. Well, if this guy's really having these sort of hallucinations and visions, he's got a problem. But if he doesn't, guess what? If it's not real, if it's not true, he still has a problem, doesn't he? I remember heading toward the door, and about the time I was ready to push the door open, I just stopped. I turned to my friend and I said, coming down the hall in a blue dress, talking to a friend. We open up the door, take a look to the right, nothing, take a look to the left. She wasn't already there. She was either upstairs or around the corner, and at that point turned the corner in the blue dress, talking with a friend. I began to seek answers that might be described as suprasensory perception. I don't believe in ESP. I don't believe in ghosts and in, you know, in all sorts of other sort of occult type things. So I was having to come up with a less new agey answer for what was going on. Now, I'll be honest with you. In retrospect, 
I believe that the Holy Spirit was telling me that I, uh, that God wasn't taking no for an answer. This is just how I've learned to live with it. I've told friends before that I'm still open to a better answer. If we have a scientific solution to this problem, if something triggers and I suddenly have a mental breakthrough that makes me aware of the universe in a whole different way and there's a scientific explanation, I will welcome it. But in retrospect, I'm willing to see this from the perspective of God having something he wanted me to do and the Holy Spirit not taking no for an answer. At the time, though, I was trying to find other explanations like suprasensory perception. Maybe I am like a dog and I can hear a car half a mile away and recognize the, the frequency of the engine of that car distinct from all other cars. Or maybe in this case, somewhere out of the corner of my eye, when I was walking across the street to school, I saw somebody three blocks away fleetingly walking into school and was able to identify it as her and recognize at least the color of the dress she was wearing. And somehow my hearing is so good that I heard her voice from upstairs coming in a general direction down the stairs. And my mind just said, you know, most people who come down the stairs in that direction are either going to the principal's office or they're going to a class. If they're going to a class, they're probably going to come down this hallway. And maybe I was able to estimate the time and distance on all those things. The scientific evidence sound just as superstitious and ridiculous as any religious explanation you could possibly provide. So I decided that I needed to say something. I'm not going to have time today to talk about what I said, and I'm not going to talk about it next week either. I'll wait. Maybe I'll wait and talk about it on the 30th anniversary of the conversation itself. That would be a little later this year. Instead, next week, I want to talk about the 25th anniversary of a, of a slightly different but very similar story of, from my perspective, the Holy Spirit not necessarily needing my permission to offer information, but it made me very serious. The experiences turned me in a very serious direction, and I began to think that either I was having some serious mental problem or... God wanted me to do something, and it was about damn time I listened. So the simple answer, the too-long-didn't-read answer for this is, for a period of time in high school, Greg developed the ability to see the future. Greg developed a notion that time isn't all that real, certainly isn't all that permanent. And oddly, that idea, which was an excuse to not put all this at the foot of God played into my understandings of theology as I got older anyway. But the notion of me trying to figure out a way to share this love, this loving intervention with somebody, this word of encouragement, this word of support, this statement of nothing more than, Hey, I care about what's going on with you, even though I don't know what it is. And you know, I don't know what it is trying to find the words to say that really put me in a place where I was widely perceived between the latter part of winter and graduating from high school as the kind of person who very well might find himself as a bizarre new age, you know, guru living on a mountaintop in Mexico, constructing the world's most profound three word sentence. I guess I have to live with that.
The last time I spoke about this particular time in high school and how I tried and failed to forge a relationship, a platonic relationship with this high school friend, I used a fictional character as my different drummer. And I'm going to go there again because I can't think of any better way to refer to the male-female relationship when it breaks down over the question of friendship than to look to Aaron Altman, who in the uh, teleplay broadcast news performed by uh, Albert Brooks, is a television reporter who falls in love with his producer, only to find out that that love is, on the one hand, very unrequited. Uh, she does not share the same amorous feelings. And yet at the same time, they have the kind of friendship that means that the collateral invested in losing the friendship over one person being in a different place in the relationship than another would have been devastating. I will let the uh, characters from James L. Brooks's movie, Broadcast News, speak for themselves in what I think is one of the greatest scenes in Hollywood movie history. Okay. Let's take the part that has nothing to do with me. Let me just be your most trusted friend now, the one that gets to say all the awful stuff, okay? I guess. Yes. You can't end up with Tom, because it totally goes against everything that you're about. Yeah. Being a basket case. I know you care about him. I've never seen you like this with anybody, so don't get me wrong when I tell you that Tom, while being a very nice guy, is the devil. This isn't friendship. You're crazy, you know that? What do you think the devil's going to look like if he's around? God. Come on, no one's going to be taken in by a guy with a long, red, pointy tail. Come on, what's he going to sound like? <laughs> no. I'm semi-serious here. You're serious. He will be attractive. He'll be nice and helpful. He'll get a job where he influences a great God-fearing nation. He'll never do an evil thing. He'll never deliberately hurt a living thing. He'll just bit by little bit lower our standards where they're important. Just a tiny little bit. Just coax along, flash over substance. Just a tiny little bit. And he'll talk about all of us really being salesmen. And he'll get all the great women. Hey, Aaron! I think you're the devil! You know I'm not! How? Because I think we have the kind of friendship where if I were the devil, you'd be the only one I would tell. Well, you were awfully quick to run after Tom's help. Which all right, you fine! Want to help? Yes! And if things had gone well for me tonight, then I probably wouldn't be saying any of this. I grant you everything. But give me this. He personifies everything that you've been fighting against. And I'm in love with you. How do you like that? I buried the lead. That is the kind of friendship that I wanted. When I've watched the movie Broadcast News, I have always connected with the Albert Brooks character emotionally. I have been in that platonic situation where I've decided to change the terms of the deal and the woman wasn't interested. I know how he's feeling. But intellectually, I'm more or less with the Holly Hunter character in terms of the friendship being more important than anything that might have come from trying to date. 
I have family members. In fact, and sometimes I feel like it's my entire family, not just my mom or my wife's mom. But I also have friends who have shared with me the same feeling that they don't like the movie broadcast news because it ends wrong. The movie broadcast news should end with these two getting together. They're obviously in the old traditional Hollywood style, the leads and the lead actors should get together at the end and the music should swell and the sun should set. And not to spoil the movie broadcast news, I think it almost is better to watch the movie with this knowledge. They don't get together in the end. As written, as characters, they're friends. They're supposed to be friends. It would have screwed up the story entirely if it had ended in any other way. But in some in some circumstances, I can use the movie broadcast news, and especially our attitudes toward the character Aaron Altman, our different drummer this week, as a bit of a litmus test. Your attitude toward him tells me all I need to know about what you understand about intersexual friendship and how much respect you have for what I call sacred friendship. If you view the friendship that these two characters obviously have, one that is so rarely put on screen in film these days, if you're willing to wipe all that away, because what you really want is a princess fairy tale Cinderella ending. I have rejected that Cinderella ending from the art that I consume. And in part, I've done it because I've rejected it with the way I've lived my life. I would have rather given a farewell address to my high school that talks about opportunities lost than I would have wanted that relationship that never happened to have turned sexual because the only way to be heard was to be heard in a dating paradigm. That's a fact that I don't think most people who graduated from my high school have the first clue about. We have now come to the time when time is most obvious to us. Shortly, very shortly, we will leave each other with only memories. It is time to face the fact that we will never see each other again. No, I don't mean our friends. We will see them again. We will also see the classmate who lives down the road. What about the others, though? What about the person who sat in front of us in our first class or behind us in our last what about the person we would see in the hall almost every day, but never quite got around to greeting? Look around for a moment. See the people? Many of us have been together for more than five years, but it's almost over. No, we will never see each other again. And even if we do chance to meet in the future, it will never be like it is now. We will change. There is nothing left to do. We have partied worshipped, and graduated. This is the end. I have only one thing to say before all is said and done. Let us, please, love each other. Why not? It is only proper that we should treat the people who have shaped our lives thus far with a mutual love. It is because of everyone here that we are the way we are. We have adapted to our friends, stolen from those we admire, and changed because of our impressions of others. Love your enemies, at least for today. What is left to offer those who annoy us at this point in time? 
This is a disaster. At least, that is how it seems once we stop and remember. Remember how we laughed together, cried together, loved together, and hated together, sometimes all at once. The only thing more painful than my most painful memory is the fact that memory is all we have left. Let us make our last memory, this one, a good one. Fill it with tears and smiles and an understanding that we are different now than we were when we first came here, but only because of each other. I look next to me and before me, and all I see is friends, even to those I have prejudiced against and those who have hurt me. All I feel is friendship. I love you. And it is through this that I will forever remember this great graduating class. Those words were written and spoken for a class day assembly, but they're also included in one of the author's folders. Freedom of expression. Why not?